I'm Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Cold Case Canada's Halloween Special. I'm very grateful to five fabulous storytellers for coming onto the podcast to tell me their favourite ghost stories. These stories take place in some of Metro Vancouver's oldest neighbourhoods and include a shooting, a haunted house, a haunted nightclub, a former insane asylum, and a haunted grand piano. And if you can't get enough ghost stories, and really, who can? Check out the promo at the end of this show for Haunted AF, a podcast about the supernatural out of Dallas, Texas. My first guest is Will Woods, and he is the founder and chief storyteller at Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. Will, welcome, and thanks so much for coming on the show. Can you tell me a few of the things that people can expect to see on the Lost Souls of Gastown tour? Well, the idea for Lost Souls of Gastown really came about when I was thinking through Halloween. I wanted our company to have a Halloween experience. And as a walking tour company, that was obviously a, that would be a very natural step for us to take to have a ghost tour around one of the older neighborhoods in Vancouver. But I wanted to do it a bit differently. I wanted to really move away from a ghost tour and, and introduce theater into the experience. And rather than having someone walking around telling you, a series of stories one by one, turn it into a, a first-person narrative where the guide or storyteller is telling you their own story of their life. And they're from that time. So in the case of Gastown, which is Vancouver's oldest neighbourhood, it's someone who was born right back in the 1800s and lived through the, the Great Fire of 1886, smallpox outbreaks of the 1890s, the Klondike Gold Rush of 1898, an unsolved murder that's a famous piece of Vancouver folklore from that time. And all these events are wrapped up in this person's life and they, they share this story with you as they walk through the streets of Gastown, which in many cases look very similar to how they looked back in the 1890s. Tell me about the unsolved murder. So this is the story of a man called John Bray, who... Back in 1898 was here in Vancouver, along with thousands of other mainly men en route to the Klondike. And our city grew massively during that time as these sourdoughs, as they were called, poured in to get stocked up with furs and liquor and guns and everything else they needed for their adventure north. And John Bray was one of these hopeful souls who arrived here. He was from, from the east and he got here and he only lasted a couple of days before he was brutally murdered. He was shot three times in the head and strangely didn't die from these wounds. He, he apparently wandered off into the forest. He was found days later, staggering around the forest, caked in blood, completely delirious. The police picked him up, took him to the police station, thought this is a drunk, we'll put him in the drunk tank overnight, he'll probably be fine tomorrow morning. When he was still the same way the next day, they took him to hospital. He spent 10 days and nights there, but doctors couldn't find the bullets because they were buried too deep in his skull. There were no x-rays then. So after 10 days, they thought, well, this fellow, in the language of the time, is a madman. So they released him. And he then walked to a drugstore on Cordova Street in Gastown called Griffith and McPherson, where he bought rat poison. And it seems that he then walked about four miles to what today is South Vancouver, but then was really, really kind of farmland. And he stepped into a, a small shack on what was then a remote farm and seemingly dropped down dead. And he was found with the rat poison, which he'd never actually taken. If this was some kind of suicide bid, he hadn't needed it. He, he just eventually died of the bullet wounds. So I think it's a really macabre gothic tale from our city's past. His killers were never found. And the, the role this plays in the story of the lost souls of Gastown, our Halloween experience is that you discover who really killed John Bray. Do you think John Bray is still haunting the city then? Well, maybe. Who's to say? Who knows? I mean, he's, he's certainly a good candidate for a haunting. I'd say that with that kind of death. Do you believe in ghosts? 
Well, I'm sceptical about ghosts, Steve. I'll say that. And I, I reserve judgment until I've had some pretty solid evidence about it. And so most of the time when people tell me ghost stories, I take them as folklore and, and tales that have been passed down from friend to friend or, or down the generations. But I will say that, I, you know, even as a sceptic, I've had strange experiences myself. I had a very strange experience in Chinatown, in fact, a few years ago. I was on a run with a friend just crossing West Pender Street near Carroll, right outside the Jack Chow building, that long skinny building that's, that's right there. Right, I know it well. Um, yeah, we, and I've, I've done many walking tours talking about that building, probably hundreds of walking tours we've done in Chinatown, stopped outside that building talking about its history. And I was standing at the crosswalk where we'd stopped because the lights had gone red, so we were waiting. There was nobody around us, and I felt a push in the back. Not, not a really hard push, like enough to push me over, but yeah. like a hand on my back giving me a, a push. And I looked around, and there was no one behind me, no one near me. My friend didn't do it. I, to this day, I can't explain it. Will, how much longer will the tours run? We run them most nights of the week, March through November. But it really is a special time to come at Halloween. There's the mist in the air in Gastown. There's that energy when it's dark at night. You don't get so much during the summer months. I think the stories really hang in the air when you're in those back alleyways of Gastown late at night in Halloween. It's fantastic fun. It's been a couple of years since I've been on the tour. Well, yeah. You're always welcome back, Eve, anytime you like. Thank you. I'll put know. you up on that. And I should just remind listeners, when you book a tour at ForbiddenVancouver.com, if you use the code COLDCASE, you'll get 15% off your tickets. Exactly right. Sure do. Bill Ullman is a president of the BC Entertainment Hall of Fame, he owns and runs Famous Artists Limited, and he's a self-described recovering Vancouver lawyer. Bill has also personally had several encounters with ghosts. In this story, he's taken us back to 1917 and a shootout in Strathcona. In researching Vancouver ghost stories, especially those connected with the Vancouver Police Department, it was our honour to receive the tale of Dirty House on Georgia Street from retired Constable Wes Fung. I'll begin by recounting the tragic events of March 20th, 1917 that lead directly to the terrifying events experienced by future Constable Fung and his family. A drug-crazed narcotics dealer and pimp living at 522 East Georgia Street threatens to shoot his landlord who is there to collect overdue rent. Police are called. Detective Cameron and three constables knock on the door. They are promptly met with a shotgun blast fired through the frosted glass panel. Lead shot and shattered glass strike Cameron in the face and tear out an eye. The officers retreat, all cut and bleeding from the exploding shrapnel of glass shards. The suspect, Robert Tate, then goes on a shooting rampage. A stray bullet kills a nine-year-old child, George Robb, hitting him in the back as he walks into a candy store. Called into the situation, Chief of Police Malcolm McLennan arrives shortly after with reinforcements. When attempts to negotiate with Tate fail, the chief leads his men in a charge of the house. As a gunfight erupts, Chief McLennan is immediately cut down by a fatal shotgun blast to the face. His men drag his dead body across the street and turn back to the object of their armed siege. After a while, nightfall descends and brings with it a torrential downpour. There is no further action from the house at 522 East Georgia. Four hours after they first arrived at the property, under cover of falling darkness and pouring rain, the officers charge the house again. This time they gain entry and stumble into a gruesome scene. Tate's large, lifeless frame is sprawled over top of his screaming girlfriend, Frankie Russell. She is covered in blood with her lover's body, 
a headless body, pinning her to the floor of the bullet-riddled room. Brain tissue and blood spatter the walls. Tate had blown his own head off with the shotgun. Tate was dead. Chief McLennan had died in the line of duty, and multiple officers were injured. The tragedy was recorded in the papers of the day. Forty-four years later, in the fall of 1961, toddler and future police constable Wes Fung moves into 522 East Georgia with his family. Now retired, Constable Fung's own words tell the story of The Haunted. We moved into the house. I'm just three months old, and my parents were unaware of the house's violent past. Years later, while telling the story to us kids, Mum would always refer to it as the dirty house on Georgia Street, saying it was the scariest place we ever lived. As she recounted the tale, her demeanor changed, becoming more and more somber. Her voice hushed, as if fearful of awakening something. She asked Dad to tell us about his experiences, but he refused to talk, telling us to leave it in the past, with a hint of anger in his voice. Maybe Pop still felt some guilt for unwittingly subjecting his young family to a nightmare all those years ago. The disturbances didn't happen every night. Sometimes days or weeks passed without incident. And the calm tricked my parents into believing it was just their overactive imagination, a byproduct of Dad working long hours at the Chinatown restaurants and Mom overly fatigued from cooking, cleaning, and caring for a restless newborn. Then, when least expected, something would suddenly give as if the house or whatever it was slowly inhaled, filling its rotting lungs, waiting for the right moment to blow its putrid breath into our faces. The occurrences began shortly after we moved in. At first it was subtle, easily dismissed. Even as a baby, I was a sound sleeper, but from the first day we moved in, I'd suddenly wake up crying. Perhaps it was just a phase. Our family doctor said I was a very healthy baby, that the crying would eventually stop, but it didn't. Some people say that babies can sense the presence of kind or of malevolent spirits. One night, a suffocating stench permeated the bedroom. Thinking she had left some garbage lying about, Mum searched everywhere, but within seconds the odor dissipated as quickly as it had appeared. Possibly the stink wafted in from outside. Then again, maybe Mum didn't want to give in to her dark fears, that the foul smell was a sign of evil seeping out from within the walls. A few evenings later, there was an urgent pounding on the wooden front door. Thinking it was a neighbor needing help, Dad quickly got up and opened the door, but nobody was there. No footsteps could be heard. This was made even stranger by the fact that there was a locked glass door in front of the wooden door. On another occasion, my parents were startled by a loud crash. While Mum grabbed me from the crib, Dad ran into the kitchen, flicked on the light, and stood in disbelief. A heavy metal ashtray, which was set in the middle of the dining table, had been hurled across the kitchen. Cigarette butts and ash were strewn about the linoleum floor. Thinking someone had broken in, he checked the whole house, but every door and window was locked. Pop was working at the bamboo terrace at the time and would tell his friends about the occurrences. Everyone told him to move, but they wouldn't give a reason. Apparently they knew of the house's tragic history, but didn't want to frighten him while he still lived there. He scoured the Chinese papers for another place, but was earning just over a buck an hour plus tips. That severely limited our housing options, and we were stuck. The incidents increased in intensity but the events that prompted my parents to get out with urgency happened only a few weeks before we actually left. As was the cycle most nights, I woke up bawling. Mum was getting up when suddenly she felt an invisible force slam into her chest, knocking her back down, pinning her on the bed. My cries sounded more desperate as she struggled frantically to free herself. Then the weight abruptly lifted, 
and she was able to break away and run to my rescue. Whatever was in the house was becoming more hostile. Dad was very worried about our safety because he worked late nights, leaving us alone. But after this incident, he knew he had to find another place for the family. We finally escaped from the dirty house after living there almost a year. Dad managed to find a shared rental house on the corner of Princess and Prior Street. We rented the upstairs, and I resumed sleeping soundly through the night. Pop's friends finally told him the story about the long-ago shootout between a drug dealer and the police. Of the killings. That people believed it was Robert Tate's angry and tormented ghost that remained trapped inside the house, visiting terror on all who occupied the home. Several years ago, there was an article in the Vancouver Sun commemorating the 100th anniversary of the VPD pipe band founded by Chief Malcolm McLennan in 1914. The article mentioned how the chief was killed during a shootout with Tate, a notorious felon from Detroit. As I read the article, it suddenly struck me that everything Mum told me had to be true. To honor Chief McLennan's memory and to mark where he died, a mosaic is etched into the sidewalk at Jackson Avenue and East Georgia Street. The house itself no longer stands. Pop eventually found a good-paying job at a sawmill in Port Alberni, and we moved there in 1963. As you do in a mill town, I eventually joined the labor force until I was laid off as the industry changed. I returned to Vancouver in 1981, working odd jobs. I had no grand plan, and being 20, didn't care. Being a cop never entered my mind until one day, while driving around aimlessly, I just happened to switch to a radio station where a police officer was being interviewed. He mentioned how the department needed more Chinese police officers to reflect the cultural makeup of the city. I enrolled at Langara College, and four years later, I was sworn in as a member of the Expo 86 class, Chinese cop number five. The irony is not lost on me of how the death of Chief McLennan and my family's history is forever eerily intertwined, where 70 years later I become a Vancouver police officer. Perhaps my destiny was cruelly carved into my subconscious night after night as I lay in my crib, defenseless and screaming for help, in that dirty house on Georgia Street. All that was needed was a benevolent psychic push. Thank you, Chief McLennan. That's from Wes Fung, PC-1305, retired. Tom Carter is an artist, a historian, and a musician who shares his Vancouver loft with a haunted grand piano. Tom recently painted the Mandarin Gardens, a nightclub in Chinatown that operated between 1936 and 1952 and had a resident ghost. What was that? the Mandarin Gardens? Was it a restaurant or was it a live theatre? Uh, it was a nightclub. It was a dining oh, and okay. supper club. Yeah. And so it had a floor show. It had kind of a raised area. They, they had um, a certain menu, kind of like the Palomar or the Cave or any of those places. It was a bottle club. So people would bring in their stuff in their purse and in their jacket, and then they'd sell high-priced mixers. And uh, they had a chorus line, the Mandarinette. Where exactly was it? It was actually where Columbia Street goes through south at Tender. The city expropriated it and tore it down in 52 so that they could extend Columbia Street. What I love is that the clubs like the Mandarin, they were these sort of really exotic and kind of dangerous places. It was the after-hours place mm. to go. So the crowds that would leave places like the Palomar and the Cave and those nicer clubs downtown, and then they'd all go over, you know, half drunk or drunk, to the Chinatown clubs. 
and then that's when those places really were going, is, is starting at midnight or one and then going until five in the morning. So who was the guy that died in the building? It was one of the original owners who was there in 36. Uh, it was a fellow named Chan C. Wong Fong, and uh, he became ill and died there in, I think, 1938. Do you know what he died of? No. <laughs> no, I don't. Is it thought that he's the ghost? He's the ghost. Well, was the ghost. I don't know if he's still haunting Columbia Street. The uh, staff, as soon as he died, they reported unseen voices and dishes rattling and that kind of thing at all hours, apparently. So that must have been a bit scary. Did they lose staff? Uh, they did. There was one fellow who quit. Uh, his name was Wo Ba Lee, and he quit uh, because every time he was waxing the floor with electric waxer, somebody or something would unplug the wax. <laughs> and they'd also turn on the water in the kitchen. And apparently it would not only turn the taps on in the, in the kitchen, but it would laugh. And so you'd hear this laughter, and that must have been really unnerving. So Charlie Nelson had an account not long after he took over. He had the club from 42 to 52. And at some point, uh, yeah, he was counting uh, the day's take. And he turned around, and he heard some laughing, and turned around, and there was a severed hand in the doorway to his office. I don't know whether it was floating or whether it was laying there on the floor. <laughs> Apparently, uh, he ran all the way to the, the VPD, which I, I guess is the one on Maine and, and Cordova. And he ran all the way there, and he brought, uh, brought a police officer back to check it out. And they couldn't find anything. I wonder if they filed a report. Uh, that would be cool to find. Did he sell after that, or was he still okay? Uh, he stayed there right until the very end. They ran the club until they were expropriated. <laughs> Tell me about your piano. I got the piano in 93, and it was for my studio. We, we were looking everywhere for just the right piano for a big recording studio, and this was a concert grand Steinway, and I absolutely loved it when I played it, but it needed to be completely rebuilt because it was a wreck. It was built actually in 1865 and built for a family in New Jersey, and then it was bought back in 1880 and rebuilt by Steinway and shipped on a sailing ship over to London, which would have been Jack the Ripper's London, and, and then somehow came back here, and in the 60s it was with a music prophet, UBC, and then it was bought by a fellow at auction that had silver mines that was quite a colorful character. And then I bought it from him. And then when I first got it in the studio, I started noticing little flashes all over the place. In the corner of my eye, I'd go, hey, what was that? Like, it looked like people moving around in my place. And so I would check rooms out, and there was nobody there. And this happened for a couple of months, and I thought, this started when I brought the piano in. I didn't think about that until this lady came in, asked me about the piano and its history, and she said that she saw orbs all around the piano. And she says, there are a lot of spirits around this piano. And I thought, uh, oh my God, do I have anything to worry about, you know? And she says, oh no, they're very, very happy here. They love living here. What were they doing? Were they playing the piano? No, they're they... just floating around, they, they, but they're okay. in the area around the piano this is where she saw them. So are they still there? <laughs> Do you know? Well, I don't see them, and I haven't had her back for a while, but I would love to have her over for a glass of wine and see if she still sees them. She says, whatever you do, never alter this piano. They don't want you to alter it. Do you believe in ghosts? I'm, I'm open-minded. Ammon Joel is a heritage interpreter at Fort Langley National Historic Site, and he's also a storyteller for Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. You can catch Ammon live at the Grave Tales Walking Tour between October 15th and November 7th. I've put a link to where you can buy tickets in the show notes 
on my website. The main cemetery in the town of Fort Langley is along the main road known as Glover Road. And on foggy summer mornings, people that drive past the cemetery claim to see a First Nations woman in a period dress of the 1800s frantically pacing about in the front two rows. Those within the cemetery in the same summer mornings swear that they see a man in a three-piece purple suit. He has an Abe Lincoln-type beard, so a lot of facial hair, no mustache. And his arms are behind him, and he's just taking a stroll through that cemetery. Yet if you make eye contact with him or you give him a head nod, he'll approach you, and in a thick English accent, he'll say, Excuse me, I'm looking for an Indian woman. Have you seen her by chance? You say no, he just smiles and nods and carries on with his walk. Little do they know that they've just seen a ghost. In 1851, a man named William Henry Emptage had journeyed all the way from Britain to arrive on the west coast of what is now British Columbia. He was newly employed with the Hudson's Bay Company, and his first assignment was to join a gold mining expedition up north in the Queen Charlottes. Today we call it the Haida Gwaii. When he arrived, he noticed all the jobs had been taken, save for one, Igniter. His job was to crawl into these holes his team had dug and pack it with black powder, attach a wick, light it, and crawl out of the hole before the explosion. Once the explosion occurs, you gather whatever bits of quartz you find, and that night, by candlelight and in magnifying glass, a member of your expedition team will pick out the pieces of gold that he finds. William does a great job for about two weeks, and one day he wasn't really paying attention to the task at hand, and when he struck his match, it broke, and the part that was lit was not the part he's holding, and the flaming piece of matchstick falls and lights the wick short. At this point, William very well knows he doesn't have enough time to escape the hole before the blast. He has to come up with a solution. The solution he comes up with is, he says to himself that if he uses his left hand to block most of the explosion, the rest of his body should be okay. Now, the rest of his team is about 100 yards away. They're hiding behind trees and boulders, and they know the routine. They're going to see William crawl out of this hole backwards, stand up, or start running towards him, and then there should be a blast. This day, all they saw was the explosion. A couple of brave souls start running towards the source of the explosion before the dust has come to rest, and they see if they can find anything salvageable of poor William Henry Emptage. By the time all the smoke had settled... The entire team was in awe because everyone saw William standing there. His clothes had clearly been blown right off his body. He's covered in soot, cuts, and bruises. His eyes are wide open. He's clearly in a state of shock. Yet his plan worked. His hand took the brunt of the explosion and it was blasted off his arm. Yet in the tight confines of that hole, it didn't go anywhere. What was left of his mangled hand still had the skin on the back of the hand attached to the stump of the arm. Now his co-workers are medical professionals. They're looking at this and they grab what's left of his hand, put it on the stump of the arm, because technically it's still attached. They bandage it tightly and they say, don't worry, William, we'll get you to the doctor in no time. It takes them four days by steamboat to reach the doctor in Victoria. 
Middle of the night, the doctor hears a hammering on his front door. He goes to investigate, lights a lantern, opens the front door and sees three men in front of him. William in the middle being propped up by the other two. One man holds William's bandaged arm in front of the doctor and says, Doctor, we had a slight mishap four days prior. Can this be remedied? The doctor can already smell the rot. Well, tell me what happened, he says, and as they explain to him exactly what happened, he's slowly undoing the bandaging at his doorstep. When the story comes to an end, he looks at the hand, and it's too far gone to be saved, but what fears the doctor more is the infection we all know as gangrene has already set in, and it's slowly working its way up William's arm. And the doctor believes if William is to sleep one more night, he may not wake up the next morning. Bring him inside, he said. We have to amputate now. Go to my dining room. As the three men go into the dining room, the doctor rushes about his house to gather whatever tools he needs for an emergency amputation. And that's when the doctor has come to the realization that he's in his home, he's not in his office, and he's missing chloroform. There's nothing to put William out, so he's forced to improvise. He meets the men in the dining room, William sitting at the end of the table, and says, Mr. Emptage, I regret to inform you I cannot save your hand. It is too far gone. However, I fear this infection might stop your heart come sunrise. We need to amputate now. I have no chloroform. You will be awake this entire procedure. William replies with four words. Do what you must. Doctor looks at William and says, William, here's a bottle of whiskey. Drink half. William drinks half the bottle. He's instructed to lay down on the table. Doctor says, William, I found this smooth stone outside. I'm going to place it in your mouth now. Bite down hard. William does as he's told. One man is instructed to hold him by the shoulders. The other holds William by the knees. The doctor gets William's damaged arm and holds it over the edge of the table. Ties a tight tourniquet further up the arm closer to the shoulder. Gets out his blade and cuts two inches ahead of the infection all the way around the arm to fully expose bone. Then he gets out his saw, because that's a medical device, and he proceeds to cut through the bone. Imagine the sights, the sounds, the smell, and the pain of William Henry Emptage, because he was awake that whole time. Cut is clean. What's left of the infected arm falls to the floor. Next thing the doctor writes was that he had not done an amputation in quite some time, and in the haste of this specific procedure, he realized he made a mistake. He forgot to leave extra skin to fold back over the wound to stitch the wound shut. So he looks at poor William and says, William, finish the bottle. William drinks what he can, but he can't finish the bottle. He's told to lay down a second time. Doctor puts down that stone in William's mouth. William bites down hard. One man holds him by the shoulders, the other holds him by the knees, and then the doctor has to push down two inches of flesh and muscle to reveal one inch of bone, and he proceeds to cut through the bone. William was awake the whole time. He lives out the rest of his days on the Hudson's Bay Company farm in Fort Langley. He marries the daughter of a Musqueam chief named Louisa. When she died, he made his wife the promise on her deathbed 
that if she were to die before him, he would bury her in the front row of the Fort Langley Cemetery. And he kept that promise, and that's where she is buried today. Sixteen years later, William died. At that point, he was land rich, yet money poor. Family could not afford the plot next to Louisa, so he's buried a considerable distance away from her. But if you look at William's grave in the entire Fort Langley Cemetery, you will notice it's not lined up with all the others because his sons made the specific request to bury their father at an angle where if he can't be beside their mother, he should at least be able to see her. And now William and Louise are still trying to find each other. My last guest is Greg Mansfield. Greg is the author of Ghosts of Vancouver, the website and the book. And I've put a link to both of these in the show notes on my website. I noticed that you've got Riverview on your top 10 of haunted places in Metro Vancouver. Yes. So why is that? Why Riverview? Riverview, it evokes such spookiness to begin with. It's like the Holy Grail. It's the top of the list for a lot of investigators who would love to get in there because there's so many stories. And psychiatric hospitals are well known in North America, especially. They're some of the most haunted places in North America, these derelict psychiatric hospitals. They just have this energy. You know, some would say that there's so much perhaps pain and mental anguish and misery in these places that it just has impregnated itself in the buildings. It's very, very haunted. Um, it's been known to be haunted for a long, long time, and investigators would love to go in. But most of the buildings are now shut completely. The big three are the West Lawn and the Center Lawn and the East Lawn, and they they have all those beautiful big porticos with the columns, and and they date back to the 30s. And the trouble is is that a lot of them had, uh, or if not all of them, had asbestos in them for insulation. So, you know, up until the early 2000s, maybe 2010-ish, you could still access the buildings and film crews would go in and use them a lot for filming television series and movies. A lot of the TV crews and movie crews would have experiences. One of my favorite stories is of a friend of a friend of mine, Lisa. She has been in the movie industry for many years. She was a movie producer, and she went into the East Lawn building in the early 2000s when you when you, they could go in and scout for locations. And she went in with a couple of fellows who were on the production team. And they were just scouting the entire insides of the East Lawn building. And it's a huge building. So they went in and they had cameras and they were just, you know, walking around the corridors and diving into various rooms and taking photos to see what would work for, for the movie they were planning. And as she walked along, up ahead in a corridor, she noticed a man standing there. And she noticed that he was dressed in 1940s fashion. You know, he had a suit on and he had a, a cap on. And she thought, oh, yeah, definitely 40s. And she thought, well, who is this guy? And she looked at her colleagues to see if they'd noticed him up ahead, and they just obviously hadn't seen him. Now, the thing with Lisa, she does profess that she's encountered kind of spirits or ghosts before. So she purports to have some abilities, if you will, psychic mm -hmm. abilities. And so she thought, uh-oh, I've got a ghost here. And 
uh, I really don't want to be bothered by this right now. Um, I've had these experiences before. They're a bit a bit annoying, and uh, I, I don't embarrass myself in front of my colleagues. So she thought, well, I'm just going to do my best to ignore this this thing, this entity. And so she didn't say anything. But what she did do, she says, is in her mind, she just projected out to the ghost of this fellow. She said, look, don't follow me around, please. Just just leave me be. You know, you respect me, I'll respect you. But it didn't work. He started following her around, just so as the threesome, you know, the three producers walked around the building and went up the stairs and so on. He started following them, and she thought, oh, no. But she realized further in that he was quite friendly. And as she turned around, she kept seeing him all the way around the building. And he had a big smile on his face. And he was joking with her, apparently. She could feel him poking her in the back. (laughs) And she would turn around and see this big smile on this thing. And she thought, okay, you're just, all right, tag along. But, you know, leave me the heck alone kind of thing. So this carried on for quite some time, and, and but her colleagues noticed that she was kind of rattled. So, you know, they said, are you all right, Lisa? And she said, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm okay, I'm okay. She realized that it was obviously, she was showing on her face that this ghost was teasing her or following her around. But they got to this one room. It was a very dark room and fairly large. And she was about to walk in when the ghost grabbed her on the right arm and tried to prevent her from walking into this room. And she just ignored it, though. So as she walked into this this dark room, she instantly got a cold feeling and thought, ooh, this is not a nice place to be. Something bad is going to happen here. And so she walked further into the room, and then her two colleagues joined her. And the two colleagues said, oh, this is a very creepy room. This does not feel right. And As they said that, and again, Lisa says that she can pick up on things and see certain things, she noticed along the far wall and in the far corner, she could see these little black shadow figures moving around. And she thought, oh, no, this is not a good place to be. This is nasty. We've got to get out of here. So she said to her colleagues, okay, guys, you're right. This is a creepy room. Let's get out of here. We're not going to use this room. This is not good. And then they finished their location scout and the tour of the building. And this ghost, according to Lisa, followed her all the way back to the front entrance and made their way to their cars that they'd parked. And as she turned around before getting into her car, she saw that the the ghost was literally standing there kind of waving goodbye to her. (laughs) And she secretly waved back and she just got the sense that he's kind of like a, a protective spirit. He protects people from harm in the building. That's the sense she got. And then as she got into her car and drove off, she looked back and he was gone. Do you think he might have been a former patient? Well, I don't know. You know, you'd think a patient, you know, often we know that spirits appear in sort of the clothing or the garb they wore when they were alive. In this case, you'd expect maybe a patient to be wearing a patient's uniform or or clothing and without a hat. And in this case, he was in a suit. You could speculate, was this some kind of administrator who worked in the building? Was it a a spirit that just wandered in and decided that this was his home and that he was going to protect the living from the the nasty creatures in there, from the other world? I, I don't know.
If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. Thanks to everyone who bought me a coffee this season. It's really much appreciated. And thanks so much for listening. This is the last episode for the year. I'll be back with season three in the spring. In the meantime, I'll be working on my new book, Cold Case BC, which will be published in the fall of 2022. Please stay in touch through my Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada, and you can also contact me through my website, evelazarus.com. I know this is ridiculously early to be talking about Christmas, but I just wanted to let you know that if you have a true crime fan on your list this year, I'm offering three of my books, Cold Case Vancouver, Blood, Sweat and Fear, and Murder by Milkshake, signed and delivered up until December 7th. Details are on my website, evelazarus.com, under books. And now I'm going to leave you with a promo for Haunted AF. Hi, and welcome to Haunted AF, the podcast of real ghost stories told by real people. We are your hosts. I'm Julie Fisk. And I'm Rebecca Black. Join us each Thursday as we share the terrifying tales people have sent to us from all over the world. She started saying, I don't want to go upstairs because of the ghosts. The ghosts are up there. Ghosts and goblins. Bigfoot and UFOs. Doppelgangers and those tricky glitches in the Matrix. We've got them all. And there is this figure on the opposite side of the tent. It was a dude with long hair. Sometimes we even like to share ghost stories that end up being pretty funny, like the ghost that would scream, hey, in the middle of the night. Yeah, or that one that liked to tickle unsuspecting armpits. We even post companion blogs on our website, hauntedaf.com, so you can see all the creepy photos and videos we talk about on the podcast. I hear my sister on the top phone say, Ashley, you could see pieces of her hair being twirled in thin air. And just so you know, you can actually listen on our website, hauntedaf.com, or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Really, it's wherever you like to listen to your podcast. The DJ was taking call after call, and people were talking about seeing this green thing in the sky. And please, follow Haunted AF on social media because we're always sharing scary stuff on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, even TikTok. And once you've listened to the show and gotten properly freaked out, then you have to send your scary stories to hauntedafpodcast at gmail.com so we can share them all on the next Haunted AF.